Welcome to Sick Fiction, the podcast that is replacing the podcast that we don't speak about anymore. Just kidding. For our old fans, just know that we needed to rebrand because as edgy and funny as we thought our original branding was, it was really holding us back in our ability to be found by listeners. That said, we are incredibly grateful for the continued support. Please rate and review us on your app of choice and stay to the end to hear the reviews and shoutouts. So that's all. On to the show. Soothsayers, holy and unholy, prophesied for centuries this age would come, the day of doom, when the verdant earth would perish in fire and trampling, in screaming and gnashing beneath the hooves of the mighty pig titan. What they didn't say is that he would be a cybernetic monstrosity 50 stories tall we helped create, with a cockpit from which we could control nothing but from which we would have front row seats to the end of the world as we watch all things firm and familiar perish in agony outside. We now come to understand the bitter truth about what was reality. Reality is a sick fiction. Featuring Matt of the Backwards Ball Cap. I really think we've achieved niche internet micro-celebrity now. Brett. The Cape to Cultus. Will we ever make something that's not a hate crime? Patrick, paranormal investigator. I was just a simple cryptozoologist. And Puggles, avatar of the pig juggernaut of doom. I have a dream every night. It's like scrolling through the reels on Instagram. I just snippets of my former life, I think. Or maybe I'm misrememorizing it. Uh, I tell my sweet Cassiopeia that... We'll finally be able to meet after my trip to the Siskiyou National Forest to search for the Sasquatch. But then I'm not home. I'm somewhere in Wyoming, walking down a paved street in a small town. I don't remember how I got there. Perhaps I flew. What I see are two men I don't recognize in the dream, anyways, standing by a fence. One is shortish and square-faced. He has a hat on backwards, and he's standing next to a fence. Towering over him is a man wearing a cape, his bald head shimmering in the afternoon light. I've stopped in to inquire about a reported Mothman sighting. I know I'm close. But then I hear the streaks of the creature dying. I've never been so close in all my life as a paranormal investigator and cryptozoologist to seeing a real, true-to-life cryptid. These two idiots, who I only realize upon waking, are actually my companions on this demonic parade float of the apocalypse. Brett and Matt, they're just standing there having a casual conversation as though an actual moss man was the most normalist thing in the whole wide world. Then I flash forward. How far? I do not know. And I'm in a room looking at the cutest little piggy I've ever seen. It's only a teacup pig, but... It is, it's in fact, it's an actual pig in a teacup. He's so tiny. And his pink snout quivers in the air as he smells my scent. I lean forward to pet him. And he snorts and he pulls away. And then something fleshy and warm touches my hand. I think for a moment that it had leaned back to accept my touch. 
That is when I realize the pig is still leaning away from me and it is grinning a wide toothy grin. I look down and to my horror, it isn't a little piggy nuzzling me with its Mormon fuzzy nose. A tentacle with a giant suction cup. Giant tendrils of flesh growing from that tiny cup as though a bottomless supply of flesh existed therein. They're reaching for me, grabbing me, lifting me up. All the while I see that monstrous grin. That's when I wake up. Sure gets hot in these pig titans. Matt! Yeah! Brett! Why are you hanging upside down and how the heck did you sneak up on me? Where did that cape come from? I keep it rolled up in my pantaloons. I'm trying to see our situation from every angle, Matt. That and I found these cool suction cup thingies in that metal lockbox over there, and it turned my world upside down, quite literally. See it over there? It says maintenance on it. There's no lock. It has suction cups and headlamps. There are several lengths of rope as well. Come see, it's over here. You just stay down there. I'll just cross the ceiling. Meet you there. Just let me jump down here. Oh, hey, these are just my size. There's a hiking pack of sorts that says, insert jar here. Is this for us to carry Patrick? That seems oddly specific. It appears as though the Desolator's new giant robot body has made accommodations for our presence here. Say, Brett, shouldn't we be alarmed that Patrick is just a disembodied head in a jar? I don't really remember, well, much of anything before. Maybe he was born that way? The thalidomide baby of all thalidomide babies. My god, how does he eat? I mean, He's just a head in a jar. You're just a head in a jar! Ah! Patrick, how did you sneak up on me? How did you sneak up in general? Years of paranormal investigation, Matt. What? How do you think I got the only credible photo of the Loveland Fragment? It's my impeccable sneakiness. Right, your sneakiness. Focus, Matt. If the Desolator has left us the tools to explore his body, then perhaps we should. After all, how are we supposed to feed the machine of creativity if all we can see is the stainless steel walls and look out of the windows of Puggle's eyes from the inside? Yet, that gets old anyways. It appears as though we've been swimming across the Pacific Ocean for days now. Not much to see but blue sky and bluer water. You don't say! Ah! How did you get over here? What do you mean? Ixnay on the Edless Hay. He's not ready, Matt. Alright, here's a door. Wow, slid right open. Not even a sound. Lubricated with the snot of an elder god. Down into the pig's sinus cavities we go. Our first story is The Strands of Kuraku by Matthew Cummins. A boy stood on the side of the ocean shore watching the last of the sunlight fade into darkness. Above him, the night sky opened up as the stars seemed to blink into existence in the twilight. The water lapped up and over his toes as he sank into the displaced sand. A crab ambled by in its sideways shuffle, pinchers raised to let him know it was ready to fight, if he was. The boy didn't notice. 
The sky looked strange tonight. In fact, it didn't look like it belonged to his universe. Javik stood on the beach he'd grown up on, looking at stars he'd never seen before, and the moon was adrift. Four days earlier, the villagers of Kuriku had fallen into listlessness, all except for Javik. It started for Javik on his morning trip to the market. Every day since he was six years old, and he was eleven now, he stopped by old man Benji's booth as he passed through town going about his chores. The old man would hail him with a smile and then wave him over in large, circular waves of his arm. First, the old guy would have some small talk. Javik would greet him with the typical greeting of the region and say, Morn da, bright flame over the water this day. To which old man Benji would have typically responded with, Aye, and a flame too bright to behold if the fishy man wills it. Then he would share a proverb for Javik to ponder. After a moment's conversation, they would move from the proverb to the oysters. For six days a week over the past six years, old man Benji had given Javik three fresh oysters and a sauce called charabuk which in the tongue of the outer domain of the Western Sea meant dragon spit or death in flames, depending on the dialect. This spicy sauce was made from a root known as the devil's thumb that grew in the hillsides all over the domain. Old Man Benji's eyes would alight as he watched Javik consider the possible meaning of the proverb as he ate the oysters. They both enjoyed the idle talk as much as the oysters, but the charabuk was close to divine in Javik's mind. No one made it like old man Benji. Yet in the first days of the strangeness, as Javik had come to think of it, there was no spark in old man Benji's eyes. Instead, they were small and distant. When Javik approached with a mourn on his lips, the old man flapped his hand at the boy and said, Away with ye! And he looked at Javik as though he were merely a strange child who had happened into his space, and no sooner could he be rid of him than he would the arthritis that had twisted two of his fingers into hooks. Javik had walked away in confusion, and though he had cried not since he was young enough to play with the other littles chasing after trapped crustaceans and sucker stars in the tidy pools, Benji's words had left him with tears in his eyes. But he had chores to finish, so he went into the market. There he found not a single smile, or even a look of recognition among the villagers, who had as much raised him as lived with him in Kuriku. He returned home that morning to find his father sitting at the kitchen table, where he had the mug that he would normally drink coffee from, but as Javik entered the kitchen, he sensed the unmistakable musty smell of beer. Morn, father, he said, a little above a whisper. His father grumbled and never even looked up. His eyes were downcast and distant. I ask for your pardon, father. I slept again on the strand. But I've already been out about the chores, and I've gotten those groceries for the next morning and that after. Aye, his father replied, and then looked up as if he was about to say something. But then he only grumbled and looked back to his mug. Javik left the room to find his mother. His mother lay naked in bed, wrapped in the bright sheets that were the only covers used during the months of the bright flame before the harvest. Javik hadn't seen his mother naked in time of memory, as she was always the first to rise. Yet he found her lying on her side, staring at the hard floor of the yurt in which they lived. Her eyes weren't sad but indifferent as though there was nothing worth getting out of bed for that day. 
and that was somehow much worse. Her copper breasts lying in the white sheets made him think of almonds and cream. Ma, he said, the tears now threatening to spill down his cheeks. Away, his mom said, and then rolled over and looked toward the window where the bright sunlight came in. Javik, who had never seen his mother in bed, let alone seeing her naked backside turned towards him so casually as if it were not strange at all, found himself getting angry. Ma, what is it with thee? And he, have you two drank at the bottom of the graph? Have they found the black caps of dreams and wonders from yon sorcerer's dell? He asked, but found humor difficult to muster in his voice, and in it he found contempt instead. His father would have on any other day walloped him aside his donker for such a jest, but his mother only sighed and casually passed gas. He walked away disgusted, confused, and in a strange sort of way, angry at how even a fart could be issued with such impassivity. An hour or so later, Javik found himself walking along the ocean. The beach stretched from Harlow's Vale to the ghost dunes of the big water, and the whole of the strand was white sand and crisp blue water. Javik could have walked until sundown and only passed a quarter of the way to the dunes. Instead, he stopped by Lord Collins' trickle, a stream that, as the name suggested, trickled water into the sea year-round. It was said that the great Lord Collins from the eastern forest once came to the vale this side of the eastern slopes and passed over the mountains in such haste as to escape the tall men and the werewolves that he pissed the very stream into existence. It was along the sandy strand of this stream that Javik had fallen asleep the night before. He had been watching a shower of streakies in the sky on the night of Hunter's Moon where all was dark. He had watched while the village slept. Many and many had known about the coming of the Streakies, as the Gatesman had foretold them. Only Javik had ventured from the village to escape the pollution of lamplight and fires. He had gone and stared up into the sky, and as the bright flashes streaked across the sky, leaving their momentary trails behind them, Javik had grown tired, staggered his way up the strand to the shelter of the finger trees, and had fallen asleep without sight of the sky near the slender hunter's moon. His last thought before falling asleep had been, The sky has grown strange. Aye, so it has. The next morning he woke up before the bright flame rose over the big water and he rushed to do his morning chores, and that was when he first encountered what he began to think of as the strangeness. In the ensuing three days, the people of the village had moved around enough to eat and drink little, but none would stir into conversation. If he pressed any of them, they would respond in one of two ways, by falling deeper into the depression in which they had sunk, or lashing out with lazy agitation. Though he had tried to elicit outright anger from them, they would never respond to him for more than a second before falling back into that quiet look of melancholy. He wasn't quick to despair, as it was not his nature. But on the second day, when he saw Marahu, a man who had long ago had to quit drinking graff for his life's sake, take a bottle and wander slowly out into the surf. Before Javik could do more than call out to him, the man submerged himself completely into the water. He just walked into it and went under. 
Javik didn't think it would have been possible to do without the waves pressing him back or without him floating a bit. He must have weighted his shoes with some stones, he thought. Marahu never resurfaced. On the fourth day, Javik awaited the gatesman at the cross on the edge of the village. Every midweek, the gatesman would come to town and tell of things that were to happen. He would tell of the coming rains or droughts. He would tell of ships to look out for crossing the harbor and of things that were happening afar. Though no one ever knew him to be wrong, the people of the village had grown accustomed to him. And though they lived on his every word, they'd also grown to think of him as a silly old fool on the edge of town. They took him for a fellow who ate too many mushrooms that gave him strange dreams. They even suspected that he had a looky glass which had given him the ability to see far and wide, but had enchanted him like an addiction. It had been generations since any had taken the role of the gatesman seriously. But Javik read the old journals at the House of Keeping where papers bound with string held tales of the days past. In these, Javik had read the gatesman stood watch over a sacred door. Sometimes it appeared and you could walk through it, other times it faded, but left a window that a gatesman could use to see far and wide. Long ago, in the capital city, a shaman studied the power of the doors as the capital had been built around one. Most of these doors allowed a peek into other lands or other times, but you couldn't truly go through. A few doors, and even some of the minor doors at a certain time, allowed you to pass into other worlds. In Kuriku, little of this was recorded. And so Javik only knew that the hut in the hills where the gatesman lived was a place of keeping. The man was young, and the man was ancient. In a word, he was timeless. Yet even so, the villagers began to think of the man as a local oddity, and though they tended to be wise, they often made jokes about the strange sorcerer who lived in the hut. So on this day, Javik waited impatiently. But the gatesman never came. Not knowing what else to do, Javik went to find him. The hut, which was really more of a house than anything in Kuriku, stood at the end of a trail that led from the edge of town and through a forest that was nigh a jungle. The stones were round circles that reflected with a bluish tint. They were often called the eyes of the fishy man by the Kurikus. Once they were a highly sought-after stone for trade but had been forgotten in places like the capital. Kuriku was a prosperous village, but simplicity was the truest ambition in those who dwelt there. So as the men and women of the interior forgot about the stones, then the Kuriku simply stopped supplying them. But even a council member from the capital would have been impressed by the path to the hut. The stones appeared bright enough that in the late evening hours they seemed to glow with the charge of the day's light. In the morning, as it was when Javik went to the hut, they were a darker shade of blue, as though still asleep. When Javik reached the door to the hut, he felt a small pressure against his chest, as though something were pushing him away. Strange, he thought. Why would a door push? He knocked. There was no answer. And when he took the lever to press it, he found the door wasn't even locked. Inside, the house was in shambles. The door opened to a large room with walls made out of stone and mortar. Javik had never seen anything like the ceiling before. From the outside, the house appeared to have a thatch roof of dried straw. On the inside, the ceiling was transparent, and on it was a map of the stars that shone out as though it were nighttime. 
Javik thought that as the day went along towards night, those stars overhead on the ceiling would change until they matched the nighttime stars overhead. And he would have been right, if not for the strangeness. Javik took another step and his foot hit a glass jar that lay on the floor. It rolled into the wall and then cracked. Javik watched as a lumpy blanket on the sitting chair on the far end of the room seemed to come to life. A scream caught in Javik's throat as a robed figure lurched at an absurd speed, as though it had appeared from out of nowhere, and it grabbed him. Javik raised a fist to beat at the hood and the face that surely was concealed therein, but that is when the man collapsed at his feet, breathing harshly. It is here, he said, his eyes wild and panicked. The meteorites! The sh- the, the streakies! The sky fell into the gateway, and now, he said in motion towards the far end of the room, there Javik saw the ceiling had a hole in it, and below that hole stood a large purple door inside a gold frame. In the center of the door, something that looked like a shard of black glass was embedded there. Javik looked at the strange rock, and he had the distinct feeling that it was looking back. Those black tendrils growing into the door, Javik thought, but he didn't want to know the answer. He is coming, the gates man said. He is coming soon, and he will send forth the one who comes before, his dark disciple, Baptist, if you understand any of the stories of the Jesus that was in the, in the other worlds. I know of the old stories, but I, I know nothing of other worlds. The gates man put a hand to his chest and said, My life is tied to that door. I have survived as it has survived, but I am the only one of few where there used to be many. There are few now, and the boundaries weaken. He comes like a thief, and though past warned us, only a few of us listened. Apathy and comfort have done for us all. Well, never mind now. My end has come. You must run, son of the Kurikus, run far. The world will pull together, perhaps. There are enough gates left to keep the order. Perhaps we are the last. For if I couldn't foretell this, then who could? Run. Run far. Javik watched as the man searched his face with blue eyes that seemed to blaze with their own internal light, like the stones on the pathways. Then, much like the stones after night, the light faded and the man fell, and his breathing slowed as he said, Run. Go to the ghost dunes. Kur... Kur... No. No longer safe. Then he was still, and Javik understood the man was dead. At the moment the gates man took his last breath, the air became alive with power like electricity. The feeling of pressure from an unseen hand pushing him back increased and black light shone out from the streaky rock in the door. Then the door splintered and shattered and was pulled into the vortex of light that appeared in the shape of the door. Javik looked within and saw a tether of light going out from this world to he knew not where. There was an audible snap, like the whips cracking as the beastmasters of the bandits deep within the forest would crack their whips to drive the monsters they kept as pets. At this, something came from the other side and it filled the entire doorway. It was shiny and made of painted green metal. It had eyes on the front and you could see through the beast. But other than some cushy looking things, the insides were empty. 
there was something like a wheel on one side, but Javik could see through the beast or, or machine. He knew not which. It jammed against the remaining frame and then exploded. What came through was a short domed-shaped wagon, for it must have been, as it had wheels. But it was unlike anything Javik had seen or would see again. On the front was a symbol that in other worlds stood for Volkswagen. It came through, and then Javik's world filled with light, and he was thrown out of the open door behind him and back onto the rocks. When he regained his feet, he ran for the village. Javik went back to his house, not knowing what else to do, and wanting to find his parents and warn them. As he did, he passed by the Hall of Keeping and the town's well, which sat in the very center of town. Javik stopped, suddenly overtaken with thirst, and he bent down to retrieve a pail. It was forbidden to drink directly from the well, but Javik no longer cared, and he doubted if anyone would notice. In his fear and flight, he hadn't noticed that there seemed to be no one in the town of Kuriku anymore. As Javik bent to drop the pail into the well, he thought the bottom had a strange look to it. The pail splashed into the water, and he turned the hand crank to retrieve it. He pulled the pail up and out of the well, and bent to drink from it. When a black liquid splashed out and landed on his toes, it scuttled across the ground as though alive, and then fell as dead and seeped into the thirsty, dry sand. Javik screamed and nearly fell into the well, catching himself on the edge. When he caught himself, he looked and he saw an eye open just below the surface of the water. He stumbled backwards and fell onto the hard-packed sand. As Javik stood to run away, he saw tendrils reaching up and out of the well. Javik found his house empty, and then as he went about town, avoiding the well, he found the village deserted. The carts of the market were abandoned. Javik took fruit that would be rotting within a couple of days and filled his pockets. He filled a bag with nuts and root plants. He went to Benji's and he took a bottle of cherubuk and he covered his nose because of the reek from the oysters spoiling in the day's sun. The jewelers, the smiths, and the carpenters' huts were all empty. Every cart sat in the market full of merchandise, but not stirred by a single living hand. The lapping of the ocean and the buzzing of insects were the only sounds. And that too was strange. Javik hadn't heard that loud of a buzz before. And he saw bugs flying through town, but instead of flittering hither and yon and landing as they might, they seemed to all be flying toward the center of town, stingy butts and flower walkers alike. They all flew as though drawn to a single place, the well. Was that a black light on the horizon from the hut, he asked himself. He didn't want to know the answer. Evening was drawing in around him, and he didn't want to be anywhere near Kuriku when night fell. He didn't know where else to go, so he turned in the direction of the strand. From there, he would walk to the ghost dunes, but not until tomorrow. He'd been safe sleeping on the strand, and so he would go there again. At the far edge of town, by the southward path, he saw a trail beaten through the undergrowth that went toward the big water. That is where they all went, he thought. And then he became sick with emotion, thinking his ma and da may have done to themselves the same thing that Marahu had done. Don't think it, for you do not know. Old man Benji had told you many a proverb that told of the misfortune of fearing what you know not. He told that to himself, and it helped but a little. The tears spilled down his cheeks as he walked, thinking of little else other than his mother and father waiting 
into the shore break and being swallowed by the big water. That night, Javik found himself bedding down on the sand beneath the finger trees. They were tall and wide and blocked his view of the blackness that rose like a glow from the village. Gooseys rose upon his arm as he lay on the sand that had grown strange and cold on this clear summer evening. Javik turned this way and that, but every time he closed his eyes, he saw the eye opening in the water at the bottom of the well. A voice whispered into his mind, Javik, come and be a part. Commune with us. One with us. Then his mother's voice spoke to him. We are here, Javik. Your dad and I have become. You can become, and we can all be safe as one. No more pain and no more weariness. Become, Javik. Drink from the well and be free. Javik stood and walked to still the voices and warm his chilled body. He walked along the strand to where the trickle met the sea, and when he stepped out from below the trees, the strange sky opened up above him. Javik stood on the shore as the very last light of day settled on the far horizon. He looked up at the stars and moon that were not his own, as though borrowed from a stranger's world. He walked to the water's edge, the water lapped at his toes as a crab shuffled by. The night had a strange light about it, black and green somehow. He sank into the sand as he looked toward the stars, and then, as he looked along the shore and out into the water, something like a vine, or perhaps a tentacle, ran from the direction of Kuraku village and out into the sea where there were coconuts floating on the surface of the water, fifty or more in rows. He drew in a sharp breath, and his chest tightened. These were not coconuts. They were heads. The heads of the villagers as they stood neck deep in water and looked up at the moon. He could see that some of them had hair, but others were balding, like dogs with skin rot. His eyes searched for his mother and father, but then he closed them. There was no use there. What good could it possibly do? When he opened his eyes, Javik looked into the sky, and he saw not the moon of his world, but a great eye, wreathed in bluish-green light and black in the center. He could see the eye, but he could also see through it, and the moon would be there again. It was his moon for a moment, and then another moon that looked like it had a face on it, and others. The eye overtook the moon again, and a heavy lid drooped and blinked once. As it closed, the world went black. When it opened again, a single black tear fell from the eye and poured into the water before the villagers. The black tear poured from the celestial being until it formed into a black, oily figure like black porcelain. It reflected the light of its father above. It stood with a head crowned with spikes. Or maybe the spikes were part of its head. Javik couldn't see well enough to tell. Its eyes glowed in the same strange light as the eye moon above. It walked across the water, not upon it, but by stepping on the heads of the villagers. Some of the heads opened like flowers to receive each step, and then closed again. Is that what has become of my ma and da? Javik wondered. The creature came closer. It came as the Baptist. It came as a mockery of the Jesus that was in other lands and in old stories. 
Javik, it whispered into his mind. It is time. The boy ran as far and fast as his feet would carry him, but every time he turned, the thing was right behind him and reaching further and further into his mind with its own. Yet Javik ran, heading towards the ghost dunes. In his flight, his feet did not betray him, and he never looked back. We now present The Werewolf's Wife. The werewolf gasped in the rarefied air as the eggshell blue gave way to vision of the stars. His spastic lungs sucked at vain nothing, and eyes glistened in the cold, as the serpent, meanwhile, constricted on his throat as if to drive home the point, you are choking and you will die. The foe bristled with python arms, one of which now choked the werewolf and circled around to have the jaw clamp shut his muzzle, while another ingloriously clomped at his rump. These two wrestlers tangled and soared up into near-earth space, the silent moon looming not far away. The demon's gambit had been to asphyxiate the werewolf by taking flight so high. To kill a werewolf is notably hard. Harder still is it to slay a demon and some may only believe that feet the domain of the Most High. The wolfman writhed within the wrestling snakes, while the demon's humanoid face, not unlike an Olmec stone face found in the darkest jungles, mouthed like a fish out of water. The combatants neared the watchful silver moon. The werewolf wrested his muzzle free and snapped the serpent head into his maw. The vile blood smacked of restaurant dumpster fluid. That smashed, he next lunged and drove teeth into the demon's neck as the headless foe arm now torqued at his throat in final desperation. He heard as the enemy wrenched, some internal noise foreboding, and he felt a disc slip in his neck. He tore a seeping giblet of meat and trachea from the foe's rancid flesh, spatters careening into space as planetoids born of a gory genesis. At that same moment, the wolf's neck cracked again this time with a deep, resonant chonk. His neck broken, he drifted limp from the serpent monster's slackened embrace, out toward the watching moon. He sailed in near space, with the empty inertia of a rock sinking into the ocean void. Insensibly, the moon began to draw. The werewolf tumbled backward beyond the dark side of the moon. He was resigned now. He could only be resigned. What he had borne until now had been both curse and duty. He'd served. He'd watered the tree of life with blood. He'd done, reluctantly, but robbed of choice, what had been bidden of him when once upon a time the harebelt and the burden of the werewolf had been passed on to him by one who had done the same to her own demise. But now the lights were fading, and there was none to take up the belt. Now dawned the end of a long night, with a full moon that seemed it would never fall silent.
Now perhaps rest. Cast into the shadow of the moon, he perceived the subtle tug of some force upon his scruff. It was no accident of gravity and velocity and projection. A deep voice welcomed him, impossible in airless space, but perhaps resonant instead in the medium of his mind. Warrior, this voice rumbled. He struggled to hold his muzzle toward that which spoke, toward the dark face of the moon. Blood droplets, perfectly spherical, trailed from his nostril. Tears glistened in his squinting, freezing eyes. What he beheld was a pair of eyes looking back, glowing as if from their own inner light. But he could see, in a moment, they only reflected the scant light. They were two big pools on the dark side of the moon, sunken into the titanic face on the back side of the moon. Some god's primal visage lay carved into the surface, sharp cheeks obliquely illumined, and something like a geometric Fu Manchu. He rumbled. His lips did not move with the sound. The dark cavern only gaped. Wolf, he said. Come nigh. I summon thee, your watcher. The werewolf was voiceless. Cold tore at his eyes. Thy calling is not complete, said the rock face. Do you even now heed the solemn call? The wolf again failed to speak. Threatened is the earth. Some thou knowest, and some in this time has yet to show. The dawn of this world is coming. The authority have I, in grave hours, given me by such faraway powers as we serve, to raise up. A champion. Hard fighting comes late to your small earth, and the soil itself shall cry out as she chokes with blood, and thou shalt rise to the hour. I invoke the right to appoint the Imperator Wolf. Thus I remake thee. I shall grant to thee flesh new and frame. In exchange, the price shall be unceasing service to thy people, thy small earth, against the powers that trickle down from most evil stars. Dost thou accept these terms? I... I do not. He could scarcely think a sentence, let alone voice one. Truly, thou judgest rightly that little choice thou hast, mortal one, by ancient law, called necessity. I may take brute necessity in place of consent. No. The werewolf, bathed in silver beams cast from the moon man's eyes, splayed out spread eagle, his battered limbs and broken spine forced straight. He looked sorry, like a beaten dog, like a soaked cat, fur matted in blood, like the emaciated victim of a war camp, 
in the last days of typhus grip. In a blast of light, flesh and sinew unbound themselves of bone. Meat swirled in frigid beams, swarmed and reformed like bees humming in on their hive. Arise, boomed the titan moon. Ruth's last champion, Imperator Wolf. As flesh bound again to bone, what became was not wholly what was, not unlike the former, as a humanoid frame clothed in ashen fur, possessing a carnivore's jaws and upright ears, but now enhanced. Might flooded veins and nerves and muscle. He was taller, at about eleven feet, and more rugged. Spires of ragged bone erupted from his shoulders and back. Separately, spindly armatures of bone emerged and cast down long carpal bones, a cape made of fleshless bat wings. Searing red demon eyes became a human blue. I commission thee, Imperator Wolf, and vest thee with the calling of the faraway powers to be him who stands for nephew Earth against what comes to end thy race. No more shall the power of the hair belt come upon thee only with the fullness of the moon. Must I still? He struggled to think. Must I? Now this form shall be the default and the man the disguise, and this by will, in place of Lunar Ebb. Tell me, tell me I'm free from the feeding, please, please, please. Not far hence at this time, he perceived a desperate psychic cry. The vanquished demon cried out in its last, and tearing a rib from its own breast, hurled it as a javelin at the reborn warrior. It speared him in the thigh, and sent him tumbling out of the moon man's silver light, transformation unfinished. Once he fell, and he fell like a falling star back into the embrace of the air that closed the brown and blue body of our naked Mother Earth. The pickup rattled down the two-track as Patsy Cline sang crazy. Emily in the passenger seat looked out over the land that was now their property. The land where they would homestead. The land where they would raise future children. It was everything she wanted. It was twenty acres in northern Idaho, far away from the big city they'd fled together with its horrors. In her lifetime, she watched the city crumble, become flooded with crime, inflamed with politics, chrismated in the literal human shit now found on the sidewalks. It was no longer safe for a woman to go out on her own. Her last remaining friends, who had not fled, drowned themselves in the willful ignorance of their drinking and Netflix. It was not a world she could bring children into. This, however, it was the sunny early days of summer. The pelt of the hills rolled golden under the sun. As the land rose up into the mountains, it began to bristle with pines, upright, stark, and swarthy. She drank it in and bounced in the seat of the truck, like a toddler jostled on some elder's dawdling knee. 
and she beamed. Only lately in her life had she felt something approaching hope. Now she began to perceive glimmers of something even sweeter. Hope fulfilled. Her name was Emily, and her new last name was Walker. She was a being reborn. Josh pulled in at the homestead, stopped the truck. He leaned in and kissed her through his thick black beard. Here's the beginnings, he said. That night, Emily and her husband sat out on the front deck as the stars came out. The wide-eyed moon stared back. They watched a shooting star fall from behind the moon, and Josh said, Make a wish. Hmm, Emily intoned from his arms. What'd you wish for? I wished for a better world for our children, she said. Then she added, And I mean not just for our own future children, but the children of this generation. I feel like the times ahead of them will be hard. Mm Mm-hmm, Josh intoned in return. There was a long pause, and then he said, I wished for a tractor. When she told her friends about their plan to homestead in the country, she had a friend, or someone she had thought of until then as a friend, who had actually had the gall to call her a white supremacist for wanting to settle down and raise children outside the city. That friend was parroting a bad vice article for all Emily could tell. I didn't say I wanted a good future for my children at the expense of anyone else, Emily objected, brimming with frustration. How the hell is it a hate crime to want kids and then wanting kids to have a good life for those kids? After they went back and forth a few times, and it was like they were speaking separate languages, Emily went on, doubling down. Fine! Maybe I am a white supremacist. If I'm white and my kids are white and I want to put my family first and love them and give them the best there is in the world. That was the last time she talked to that one. Josh had appealed to her exactly because of that defiant, unapologetic bent that she was now picking up from him. She had gotten a saying from her mom, A woman's strength is not in her arms, it's in her heart. A man's strength is in how far he'll go for the sake of his family. When she told this to Josh the first time, she started to say the last part, a man's strength is. And he completed it with, not giving a shit what anyone thinks. She knew then it was him. Their disillusion with the crumbling of the city around them bound them together. And the future vision they wove in their talks wove them together in a thread of hope. Neither of them liked where they had found themselves. Neither the society in which they found themselves nor even the people they had become flailing in their navigation of it. Both gave up drinking around the time they met each other, and a myriad of other little unhealthy habits that plagued their generation. Once moved in, they wasted no time getting chickens, and Emily named every one of them and ascribed them their own personalities. Josh built the coop. Emily scooped the poop. Emily painted a quaint little sign that said, Home is where the chickens shit and left it on the coop to see how long it would take Josh to notice. Since she was the one who tended them, it took him quite a long time. Emily's favorite hen was Dorita. She was as orange as the flavoring on a Dorito's chip, and kind of upside-down triangle-shaped to boot. Not that she ate Doritos these days. She ate farm-fresh eggs and homemade farmer's market sauerkraut, and was getting into baking sourdough, and she kept well clear of the poison hocked in drive throughs and box stores on every corner. Again, Josh's shared endeavor to eat only real food 
that would have been recognizable as food to their great-grandparents was a key test passed in his favor. Because it wasn't just for her and for him. She wouldn't give any man the time of day who threatened to feed that bullshit to their future children. One might say she'd become a radical. Her former roommate did. So did the friend who called her a racist. But in aberrant times, the traditional becomes the radical, and the radical the main line. And now, married and homesteading. Emily found herself so traditional, she was practically a domestic terrorist. Every evening they'd sit on the porch and watch another star or two fall from heaven, and she thought, that's okay, I'm going to pop out enough kids to repopulate even heaven. And God help her, each night they worked at it. The first blood shed in paradise met her eyes the morning, they supposed. A fox or hawk had gotten into the chicken coop. Of course, it was bright orange Dorita who'd gotten snacked on. What remained was a little crater of red and feathers littered with bones and gristle. Emily cried all morning. Bought a game cam for the coop in the afternoon. And then the more she grieved her hen, got angry enough, she personally waited out on the porch at night with a shotgun for the culprit. Around midnight, Josh emerged from the house, found her asleep, cast an afghan over her on the rocking chair, and sat down beside her and stared into the shadows. After a few long minutes, he took a deep breath, wished for a moment he still smoked, and then picked her, mumbling insensibly, head rolling against his chest, up into his arms, and carried her inside. The shotgun he left propped against the trim of the front door. In the scant light of the wee morning hours, he was awakened by a shotgun blast. Bolting up in bed, he uttered, Emily! But he quickly found her sleeping safely beside him in the shadows. Didn't she hear it? Did I hear it? Or was it a dream? Glambering from the covers, clad only in his briefs, he barefoot padded down the stairs from the loft to the front door and peered outside into the slim moonlight. The shotgun lay on its side on the boards. It had only fallen and discharged, he noted. He craned his head out the screen door and looked around for signs of collateral damage. It was a mistake to leave it propped up, he remarked to himself, and went back to bed. It was the next day Josh decided to go for a ramble behind the house, and he met the neighbor. Behind them was an old farmstead with a condemned house on it. He had toured the property when they were looking to buy. Josh thought little of trespassing believing no one lived on the site, and so the owner was unlikely to catch him. So he crossed a fence and wandered down along the creek in a draw, full of willow brambles and cattails. He had the shotgun. This was fortunate because he flushed something and caught a glimpse of Tawny Coat. The animal was large. It was probably a deer, but he thought also perhaps a mountain lion or a bear. Curiously, whatever it was splashed into the marsh among the reeds. By the sound of it hitting the water, it was indeed large. Josh rounded some brambles, and a little marsh opened up in front of him, walled in by willows. It was a naked man who stood looking at him, up to his waist in murky water. Josh lowered his gun, not because he was at all comfortable about this, but he forced the barrel down away from the man with sheer force of will. He was gaunt, pale, desperate-looking. A squatter. Josh wondered. Has to be. 
Hattie ho the naked man said. Yo, Josh returned. He hardly knew what to say to a naked tramp, so there was a significant pause. I believe we're neighbors now, the man said eventually. My name is Josh. What's yours, friend? Also Josh. Well, then mine's Alan. Neighbors, huh? Josh said. Yeah, he thumbed back toward the condemned farmhouse, which was hidden by the foliage and terrain. You uh, own or rent, Josh pushed. Oh, rent, I suppose, he answered. Can't say I own. Sure. Now look, kid, Josh said. I know for a fact that house is abandoned, condemned. You better just move along. That's when Josh noticed the different hue in the water near the man's loin, subtly darker. You're bleeding, Josh said, pointing with a nod. You should look to that. Oh, yeah, that. I gouged myself on a branch. Not as bad as it looks. Tell me, Josh, are you from around here? Where I'm from is none of your business, kid. Like I said, you better clear off this property. I think if we asked my landlord, you'd be the one trespassing, Josh, he said. Not that a friend isn't welcome, if I can say we're friends. Mmm, Josh groaned and chewed at nothing. Josh, I want to tell you and your wife something. Josh had not mentioned Emily, and deliberately so. Had this creep been spying on them? I want to tell you, he continued, this place is no good, and it's getting worse, Josh. I'm scared for you two. You chose a bad place to settle down. You may not believe me, but I'm telling you this as a friend. It's in the ground, Josh. The soil itself is spoiled. It's coming up from the earth itself. Great, kid. Thanks for the notice. Now I'd like to see you move along. I'm afraid I can't do that, Josh. If we're done chatting, you will need to move along, as this is not your property to command. Josh grumbled, slowly turned, but kept one eye on the man, and trudged through the brambles and snaked his way back home. Now he felt afraid for Emily, and like moving here was a mistake. But the only evil he saw contaminating the place was that creepy squatter. He resolved to call the sheriff to check it out as soon as he got out of an earshot of the guy. No, this didn't make him feel good at all. He wanted to live in a community where he could meet neighbors, but this is not what he hoped for. Trudging downhill and deep in thought, he didn't notice when the heel of his boot splashed in a curiously dark puddle, like tar, that had boiled up into a recess in the dirt and stained his soul. As he jaunted up the porch steps, he patted his pockets to find his phone was not on him. He'd ventured on his walkabout without it, without even a thought about it. No one who knew him would be surprised by this. Emily would not be surprised about this. So often her texts went infuriatingly unanswered, but conversely, she'd much rather have that than a husband who couldn't look away from it. Crashing in the door and into the entryway, though, his first thought was Emily and her whereabouts. Not finding her in the house, he took up his phone from the kitchen counter and flew out the back screen door. Em! he called. Emily? Her car was there in the drive. Shit, he swore. She's somewhere out on the land. He called out her name one more time and then began to call the sheriff's office as he hustled back to the tree line. The man emaciated, dire of face, 
addressed her from the marsh. My name's... What did I say? Alan. What's yours, neighbor? Emily, she said. My husband Josh and I are new to the area. Sorry, am I on your property? I was just wandering and not paying attention. Uh-huh, said the pale man. His eyes shone ghost blue and were not afraid to look her in the eye, like most men were. You know, this isn't a great place to live. There's something evil here. Uh, is it you? She thought, but did not say. The Buddha said, I heard once, he told her. Two things you never trust. A wolf who is skinny, a teacher who is duplicitous. You're skinny, she said. Are you also duplicitous? Yes, he said. And what are you? A wife, she said. No better thing to be. I mean, I've never been one. But I hear that it's the hardest but most fulfilling work. And what do you do besides wait in Jardia water? He raised a hand out of the water, palm up, and watched the water drain through his fingers. Then he reached and squeezed a cattail puff, and as he released, it burst into something like tawny cotton candy. I'm semi-retired, he said. Just moved to the country to get away. At your age? What are you, seventeen? Huh. I suppose I look thirty, if we're honest. I value my independence. I prefer to work for myself, but you don't always get much choice. So you didn't tell me what it was you did, if I may ask. If I'm asking too many questions, you can just tell me to buzz off. In fact, I should be going. I was something like a mercenary, he answered quickly. Oh, she stammered. I, I can't imagine. No, you can't. Neither do you want to. Human blood is a thing that stains you that you can't wash off. You can wash it off your skin, but not off your soul. Where did you serve? I... I was not military. I didn't serve, per se. And I was most everywhere, wherever I was needed. And I was alone, mostly. Wow, and now you live in that farmstead yonder? He nodded and smiled sheepishly. I suppose I should shake your hand? He said and stepped forward, slashing the water and rising up a little bit. He held his hand toward her. Emily! came Josh's voice, distant. Oh, that's Josh then, she said, relieved. Hey, good to meet you, but I need to be going. His hand dropped. He only nodded, still grinning and showing teeth. And Emily, waving, turned and ran away. She met Josh partway through the cops. She was eager to get back in sight of him and get back to the house. By the time they made it to their yard, a sheriff's deputy's cruiser had pulled in. After talking with them, he first walked up the way they had come. Not finding the man, he came back down and then drove around to the driveway of the condemned house. He was gone for twenty minutes or so and then returned. The deputy knocked on the door and told them he found evidence of a squatter, but that they had probably already scared him off. He gave Josh his card and said to call if they saw him come back, and that he'd drive by on his patrol at regular intervals over the next few nights, but that they shouldn't worry too much. Most squatters are harmless other than to the property itself. They locked the doors, and Josh kept the shotgun by the side of the bed that night. Were you scared? Josh asked her at some point. Not as much as I should have been looking back, 
she told him. As creepy as he was, he had a real calm demeanor. I didn't feel like he was going to hurt me. I don't like it, Josh said. The next day, Josh felt like another long walk, this time with a shotgun. He didn't leave Emily unprotected and unarmed at the house, however, but left her equipped with a can of bear spray. She wasn't particularly worried about Josh. He was a tough-looking fella, and, in this case, armed, and who knew whether the squatter was dangerous at all. But as the afternoon wore on and he didn't come right back, worry did begin to nod her guts, subtle at first but hours into it metamorphosing into something like meat-eating butterflies picking apart her kidneys. As Josh's walk had started, he trudged back up the hill through the copse of trees as he had done the day before. He dodged small puddles of dark water nested in niches in the ground cover, barely registering to himself the doubt that it had rained any time recently. Instead, craving consumed him. He could scarcely see the trees. All he could see was his hand reaching into a cooler, pulling out a six-pack of beer, and then telling himself to live a little, reaching in and pulling out another, and finally sinking into rest, and his nerves ceasing to hum like gnarled wire flattened out, a calm he had not experienced since Emily came into his life, and he forswore this indulgence. But though he tried to reason his way out of it, his body had learned to need it, and it pulled at his heart with the stubbornness of a dog who won't give up the game of tug-of-war when the owner's long since worn out. It'd be so easy to feel good. He just had to reach out, grab a beer. His boots sloshed in a shallow puddle, pulling him back as cool water seeped into his sock around the toes. God damn it, he swore softly. Back in the real world, he reflected on the reverie he'd just been in and marveled at how disconnected from how he felt now it was. He did not want to drink. There was nothing appealing about it. He would not throw away this thing he was building with Emily and all this progress he had made since the darkest days of his young life. Hell, the shotgun in his hand had, once upon a time, an entirely different significance to his struggle for self-control than it had in his life now. What's the frickin' water? he mused, avoiding another pool as black as the dead screen on the phone he'd left at home on the counter to Emily's chagrin. He felt a tightening in his chest, and following it the intimation again of what promised to loosen it. It would be so easy to slip down to the liquor store, to stay up after Emily's gone to bed and have a beer on the porch. Damn it, Emily. If I hadn't met you, I could do what I wanted. There the thought was straight from the devil but ringing honest and true in his heart. He just wanted to feel good. He was as entitled to that as anyone, right? It was as easy as reaching into the cooler at the store. If only Emily had somewhere to be, if only she would go visit her parents soon, then I would be free to just feel good for a moment. That's all I want. That's okay, right? His white knuckles choked the shotgun, and for a second the barrel was the open neck of a bottle in his peripheral vision. He marched swiftly, blindly. Robotically, he avoided ever larger pools until he nearly tripped on it. He staggered and sidestepped, staring down with sweat on his clammy brow at the sealed six-pack nested cozily in the shallow of the water against the grass, speckled 
with shimmering beads of condensation. Dumbfounded, he stared. He stepped back. He smiled. Did the hobo leave it? What luck! What terrible, terrible misfortune! No, he thought. I don't know why this is here, but it's not for me. I can walk away like I never saw it. A fair arm, and slight, slipped up from the black water, snagged a clanging bottle, and offered it up to him. His breath cut in his chest. The crown of her matted hair came up next, and the nape of her neck, her naked shoulders following. A gorgeous nymph, nubile, graceful, pale as winter, rose up, droplets draining from her body. Her strange, small-chinned face stared into his, with a coy smile and blank eyes. She passed the glistening beer into his hand, and then leaned into his chest. Behind her, from another puddle, more girl arms emerged like spider's legs, and then another crown from yet another pool. The girls unfolded themselves from the ground, each as white as teeth, hair as dark as the water. Josh trembled. Slow, his slack jaw tightened to a smile. Later in the afternoon, Emily couldn't wait anymore and set out with the bear spray in one hand and phone in the other. It was probably paranoid, but there was no sitting still and waiting after a certain point. That gnawing feeling would not be satisfied as long as she merely sat and twiddled her thumbs. The moon sailed by daylight through the pallid sky, faint as a ghost. Elsewhere, among the reeds, the naked man pressed upon his wound near his hip and watched the same moon drift, his face contorted with the torture of longing and a not dissimilar desire for a much-delayed rest. Emily marched up toward the tree line under that moon and noted it briefly herself. It called up deep ancestral memory as far back as when man was little differentiated from ape, when reason first dawned, and with it the first tracking of the times and seasons by the watching of the moon, and further back than that, to the age that female and male diverged, and the womb began to mimic the rhythm of the silver one on high. But she did not know the meaning of this feeling in her, only the resonance of an old relationship. The details were forgotten, but not the feeling. She wouldn't let a skinny hobo rob her of her husband. She'd never had problems pulling the attention of men, but she'd not likely find one as resolved as Josh in the same things that were important to her. Now, on the cusp of creating her dream family, she wouldn't lose the dude to getting butt-raped and murdered by a meth man for the twenty bucks in his pocket. He was going to impregnate her, preferably multiple times over, post-haste. Something squirming bit her attention back toward the trees, and what she saw arrested her steps, like a big pink bean. A baby lay on a stump, little fingers playing in the air. Oh my god, she whispered. As she ran to the child, the first red flag was that the little guy was neither crying nor smiling. Her feet sloshed through water at the base of the stump. Then the baby turned his head with disconcerting calm and the eerie suggestion of reason to look at Emily. His face was stoic. His arms stopped reaching into the air, and he got up onto his feet and stood to face her as she gasped. 
The baby said to her, Everything born of your womb will perish. She held the bear spray at him. I know your heart, Emily, he cooed. You may call me Cherub. You are a protector on this land. You may not enter these woods, that is, if you want a family. If you wish to see children, worry not for your husband, for I have saved him from the traitor and will return him to you. Listen, do you hear that sound coming from your house? She became aware of a baby crying back indoors. That is the sound of your baby, Emily. Go home and ensure your future. When Emily found herself back indoors, she felt as if she had just awakened from a dream, but she almost suspected that, that was exactly the case. She looked out the back kitchen window over the sink toward the stump where she had just spoken to an eloquent baby. Unsurprisingly, there was nothing there now, but Josh was still up in those woods. She left the house again, with a feeling reminiscent of getting out of bed and ready for the day only to wake up in bed and find you were dreaming and start over again, and to do so in a loop however many times. But this time it was different. Mist rose from the pooled water and snaked through the trees. When she encountered the first black puddle, some creature thrashed about the size of a snapping turtle. But it was a baby thrashing, drowning. She ran for it, only to realize in a dozen other pools, at least a dozen other infants were struggling. Up in the mist, slender figures were roaming, like girls with big, coal-glowing eyes, moaning like ghosts of the dead. The land is evil, Emily gasped. She watched and trembled and kept telling herself her husband was up there somewhere. The bear spray rattled unintentionally in her hand at her side. God help us, Emily prayed. An animal's low growl ran her blood cold. Something else was moving now in the mist and shadows, like a hoary bear, swiping at and dashing the girl-like figures like apparitions of smoke. When all went silent, the man came down through the fog, carrying Josh in his arms, and it was almost silly to see the slender man bearing the weight of the limp larger man, but Emily ran toward them. Josh! she called. When she met them, she hardly perceived the bare-chested man in cargo shorts that looked like they came out of a dumpster, or the blood of his wound coagulated on his leg. She looked into Josh's face and pet his hair and saw his squinting eyes rolled in his head and struggled to track her, while the bare-chested man paid her little attention and continued bearing Josh toward the house. What happened to him? she demanded. On her property, looking back, the woods were suddenly clear of all mist and nightmare, but the pools still glistened in the afternoon sun. He's drunk, the man said finally. But not wholly by his own fault, he had help, we'll say. Drunk, Emily repeated, confused. Emily, Josh murmured. What have I done? I'm sorry. It's, it's okay, honey. You'll be okay. She looked at the gaunt man. Thank you, she said. Thank you. Did Cherub send you? He frowned. Is that what he's calling himself? She let the stranger bear her husband into the house and deposit him on the living room couch. To her relief, he immediately turned to leave, but seeing his intent, she said to him, Alan? That was your name, right? He half turned by the back screen door. What just happened? Leave, he said. Your friend, Cherub, 
is manifesting, and he's almost strong enough to be a problem. And if he's not enough reason to leave, there's me. He left without further word or ceremony. Emily spent the night in the chair beside Josh, who slept much and recovered from the state he was in. Whenever he was awake, he kept apologizing, groveling, and all Emily could do was pet his head and tell him it was okay. Can you forgive me? He kept saying. The next morning, come dawn, Emily witnessed the writing on the wall. Josh hung over, recovered in bed. But Emily stubbornly rose to face her chores as normal, and at first, the day and the rising sun and the blue sky tricked her into believing it was normal. But there was no clucking or pecking from the chicken coop. The writing graced the wall of the chicken coop, the ground of which she found a post-apocalyptic wasteland of feathers, bones, blood, and heaps of entrails. No fox had wrought this work. No falcon was so literate as to scrawl the words, Help me. This blood does nothing and around the side, on the wall facing the woods, was written, I don't want to kill you. The sheriff's deputy arrived by eight, and having surveyed the property thoroughly, removed Emily and her husband to town, to a cheap motel, until the situation could be understood. She did not mention much of the previous day to the deputy, except that she had seen again the squatter in the woods. She stayed with Josh the next few days in a motel, a shoddy one, but she felt safe with the sheriff's men keeping a close eye on them. Josh would barely leave the bed, even after he'd sobered up, and what hangover he'd had had dissipated. He'd scarcely meet her eyes, and he was barely interested in eating. She sat by the bed and pet his arm. He rolled away. She could see the shame consume him. During these days at the grocery store, she first saw the missing person flyer. A boy of about fourteen had gone missing near the woods. She recognized that the man, the gaunt wolf, as Cherub had referred to him, was escalating, and that it could have been them instead, following the chickens. When a search party was organized, she drove to the edge of the highway where they were meeting with the sheriff's men and the federal agent. She got out and spoke to the deputy that she recognized, and he urged her to simply go back to the motel. But catching eyes accidentally with a federal investigator, a dark and stern-looking man in cliché blue windbreaker, he approached her. You're the one from the farmstead, the chicken rancher, he said. Emily, she said, and held out her hand. He did not take it, but showed his badge, a badge unlike any she'd seen before. The brass emblem was a hand covered in scales. Go, Emily he said. There's nothing for you here. What? What? She stammered. When he had turned his back on her, she asked the deputy, Who was that? And what the heck sort of badge was that? Hmm? He toned. He's FBI. Schoenfelder's his name. As the agent neared the edge of the woods, nobody seemed to notice the agent stopping to talk with a floating baby. It looked at her. Emily felt sick to her stomach and left. 
On the next afternoon, Josh was out of bed, but only interested in watching TV. Emily, at the table by the window, suddenly felt like she was being watched. Assuming it was the deputy driving by, she nudged aside the blinds and gazed out at the street. Across the street, there was an overpass for the train tracks. And in the bank, there was a culvert. In the culvert, there waited an emaciated figure. Moments later, she was crossing the parking lot and noted that it was spring, but not a single bird sang. The air was hushed aside from the noise of traffic. She stood well away from the man on the grassy shoulder of the road. Emily, he said. I want you to know that I didn't hurt him, the boy. I want you to know where he is. Don't trust the sheriff. He speaks to the serpent's hand, who speaks to the one who seeps up from the earth, Fanuk, the cherub that you met. The boy is in the unburied septic tank at the construction site on the highway. I had to put him there, because I could not reach him when I came back. I don't understand. That's for the best. Just pull the kid out. How did you get that wound? She asked him. He didn't answer. Did you write the words on the chicken coop? Yes. Why did you threaten to kill us? My mask slipped, as it does. But soon it will be over. What do you mean? I'm retiring. Are you the evil? Or is he the baby? Cherub. What did you call him? Fanoc? Yes. Which? It's all evil, Emily. Every last bit of it. He stepped into the light, shielding his eyes with his forearm. See this scar around my waist like a belt? There above his dumpster-found cargo shorts, a lumpy pale band of tissue went nearly all the way around. Yes? I got that long before this fresh wound you see here. Put your hand just below my navel. Uh, she stalled. Yeah, I wouldn't trust me either. Also, I'm almost naked, so that's super awkward. But look here. A giant eye opened just below his solar plexus on the scar line and gazed up at her serenely, vibrant blue. Touch it. Touch? She drew nearer and put forth her fingers. They wobbled. A car sped by, startling her. She reset her attention on the eye and touched it. It was wet. It did not blink with her finger in it. Emily felt the slow breaths of that old titan, time, escalate to a panicked hyperventilation, transported back who knows how long to some ancient epoch. She saw the history of the warrior wolf. She saw thousands of them marching beneath a red sun. Volcanoes vomited red plumes at the jagged horizon. Through the plain, the host of wolfmen marched beneath blood-red banners, terrible and flapping, emblazoned with a forbidden sigil, ranks upon ranks of wolfmen. So many they shook the earth, and at their head, one taller than the rest, ornamented with rugged bone and a cape of fleshless wings, the one called Imperator Wolf. She looked up at his blue eyes, the naked man in the jaundiced sun. What? kind of mercenary were you? She stammered. Now you've seen, he said. His smile was contorted by the force of will. She traced the scar line with her finger, 
but he caught her arm in his grip and pushed her away. His weird smile was gone. After he disappeared into the culvert, she ran to her car. She hesitated with the keys and the ignition for five minutes. Could this be some trap of his? And why didn't he hurt me just now when he had the chance? She debated with herself whether she should tell the sheriff and send him instead to investigate. But he had asked her not to. But why did she care what he had asked her? She started the car. She drove out the highway to the construction site. At a distance, the sheriff's deputy followed her. She pulled in through the gate and the old stock fence, onto the field of dried mud pressed with the tracks of trucks and heavy equipment. Tufts of grass poked up here and there. An excavator loomed idle like a dinosaur sleeping on its feet. There were beams and stacks of lumber. She pulled up to the cement cube that sat on the dirt beside a fresh-dug pit, the septic tank. She walked quickly around it and noticed the lid on the top. Clambering up, scraping knees and thighs on the unsmoothed concrete, she stood and grabbed the two rope handles on the manhole-like lid and pulled. As she struggled with the dumb weight, the words echoed in her mind. A woman's strength is not in her arms. Except right now, she thought. It has to be. The lid scraped across the concrete with a stony resonance. She gazed down into the half-dark portal. Hello? She tried. Slowly, she made out two glistening eyes looking up at her. Oh my gosh, she said, and got down on her knees to try to give the boy a hand up. When she had managed to get him up on top of the tank, he sat there and she looked him over. He was disheveled and dirty, but intact, it seemed. There were clean streaks under his eyes on his otherwise soiled face. It's Haven, right? Your name? She recalled it from the posters. My name's Emily. Are you hurt? Are you hungry? I just want to get the hell out of here, he said. Understandable. Hungry? Yes. But I might have to be a vegetarian now after something's been trying to make a meal out of me. I identify a little too much with food now. Still, I think I could stomach some, like mac and cheese or something. What do you mean? He looked at her. He was too exhausted to cover up an unbelievable truth for the sake of getting weird looks. Some half-naked dude shoved me in here. Just when I thought some pedo had stowed me away in his love cage. There was some sort of giant wolf head trying to come through at me. But it couldn't get in through the hole. Too big. As the conversation stalled, they became aware of the crunch of rocks beneath tires. They saw the sheriff's deputy pulling in. Shit, Emily swore. The boy glanced at her and then at the pickup. Emily got to her feet. She looked down on the deputy as he approached. Haven, he said to the boy. The boy nodded. We'll get you cleaned up and fed and home, kid. He looked up at Emily. Thank you. How'd you know to find him here? She took a deep breath and looked up at the moon, then back down at the deputy. You ever just get a feeling? How does a body know when the moon is full? I don't buy that for a minute, he said. Lion doesn't suit your honest face. You saw the hobo again, didn't you? He told me where to find him, she admitted. I don't think he heard him. The deputy insisted on questioning her at the station. When she was in a small, closed room, he turned her over to the federal agent, Schoenfelder, who scared the crap out of her. 
The deputy, perhaps, she was ready to talk to, and even to tell the strange parts. But this creature? He might as well be Slender Man. I'd just like to answer your questions and get home to my husband, she said, cutting him off before he spoke. Do you worry about him when you're away from him? Agent Schoenfelder asked, and she didn't like the tone. Does he get up to trouble when you're not there to babysit? He didn't give her the chance to respond, but changed the subject to the matter at hand. I don't have any questions for you, Emily Walker. I know everything. Rather, I want you to listen to us. I want you to know why you can never go back to that property. He pulled out the chair with a terrible scraping sound, and sat down and put his fists on the table and leaned in. His face was wan, and he wore sunglasses indoors, his complexion clammy. Emily, our planet is a prison. I represent the wardens of that prison. Millions of years ago, there was a power out there, out in that vast and unfathomable cosmos, which threatened everything. An evil race of spirits spread through the worlds, committing abominations and genocide on a thousand populated planets. The shadow race spread through the planets, selfish yet coldly rational, slippery and powerful in dark arts. Never before or since had such crimes been witnessed, except inasmuch as they are now echoed in miniature in the little petri bowl of planet Earth. You see, some other beings formed a coalition to imprison this spiritual parasite and managed to do so here on Earth. This is what haunts my land? Emily burst out. No, he answered simply, confidently. I said to listen. We chained that race in the burden of weak and weary mortal flesh, weighed down now by the weight of desires, illness, and ultimately, death. This greatly diminished their power and kept them bound to one single planet. This coalition became the Wardens. The protector you met is one of them. The demons chained in flesh now chase after the phantasms of their fleshly desires and futility. Their eyes no longer clear-sighted and unified on the stars. They call themselves human. But that's not all. There are those monsters who, awake to their inglorious past, are no longer ignorant, yet do not wish to quietly atone for their past sins. And they fight against the Wardens to seize again their ancient supposed glory, armed with an illicit weaponry gained against Covenant from others out in the stars. This is the cadre of insurrectionists who fight against the Wardens through the generations, proud and filled with the spite of their ancestors. They embrace the evil they were. The rebellion is fueled by nothing less than human flesh. It is human sacrifice that powers their alien weapon. This is why you cannot go back, Emily. One of these, the last of these, shelters himself and licks his wounds here now. The Protector is manifesting, meanwhile, to quarantine him until, hopefully, this last remnant of the evil starves and perishes. And one more thing. This is my proof to you of what I've said. Now that you're awake, you should know the right path. The proof is that the next time you see yourself, you will see what you really are. There was a long silence. Emily stood 
with the terrible sound of her chair leg scraping. My husband needs me, is all she said. Back at the hotel room, Emily sat behind Josh on the bed and brushed his black hair with her fingers. I swore when I met you I'd never get drunk again, he murmured. Unconsciously, her hand stopped and she waited for what he might say. I feel like I can hardly look you in the eye. I thought I was stronger than that. Can't believe how weak I proved myself to be. I can hardly imagine... A future where I have to look at you in the eye every day knowing that. How do we move forward from here? Joshua, she cooed, resuming the brushing of his hair. We all make mistakes. I have regrets too, you know. I can't stand to see you tear yourself apart. That's what hurts me more so than what you did. I don't think that you are yourself. We have our future ahead of us to build. I want us to have a happy house full of happy little children running around with the chickens. The thought of the chickens made her stop. She stared absently at the window, though the blinds were closed and it was night on top of that. After a moment, she said, I want our land back. I want our future back, she thought silently. We can't go back, she said then aloud. She kissed her husband on the head and wove her way through the room over to the little table beneath the window. Meanwhile, Josh lay down and seemed to sleep. Emily sat and opened her laptop. She had never looked at the camera footage for that night, the camera which they had installed when they thought their foe was a mere fox. She had been too squeamish, if she was honest with herself. But now understanding truth seemed more important. Emily found the night and stepped forward through the hours. She must have passed over the moment in one of her skips because suddenly they were all dead and scattered in pieces. She backed up a little. The skinny man loped into the shot, green in the night vision, like a glow-in-the-dark party skeleton. Emily's chest grew tight. She clasped vainly at her collar. He let himself into the chicken wire and reached into the coop. He yanked a kicking chicken out by the neck and bit right into it, Emily gasped. He wrenched and tore as the chicken scratched him up. But then something happened as blood ran on his chin and his eyes flashed in the night vision. A muzzle burgeoned from his face and fur bloomed from his cheeks, like a balloon inflating in a paper sack, until the sack burst, leaving only the balloon, bigger than the former container. So did the monster erupt from the gaunt man's skin. One by one, he tore apart the chickens and dashed their remains on the coop and grounds. When he was done, he clawed at his own head and then wrote the message he had left. Help me! This blood does nothing! Emily could see. When he turned to lope off into the night, the shining wound in his thigh, exposed in this form as well. Then, thinking about that first attack, the night she lost to Dorita, she rewound to the beginning forgetting they only bought and mounted the camera the day afterward. But as she scanned through that night and saw herself fall asleep on the porch with the shotgun and then Josh come to take her in, leaving the shotgun propped beside the door, she came to a point where that same creature skulked into the frame, up onto the porch like a limping, tired, and beaten dog, muzzle low to the deck, ears down. 
She watched him draw near to the shotgun and sniff it. Suddenly he took it into his big paw-like hands and shoved the barrel into his own maw without hesitation. He pulled the trigger. There was a quick flash as his head rebounded and Emily gasped. But the beast shook his head and seemed to regain his wits. He arched his head back and seemed to scream into the night, raising his claws plaintively as if to God above, and then he sauntered off into the night again. Emily was crying. Help me, he had said that later night. This blood does nothing. I don't want to kill you. She pictured the giant wolf head trying to come through that little hole at the boy in the tank. She sat quiet for a long time and rocked with her arms crossed tightly as the clock ticked toward midnight. She cried. She cried for a very long time. Deep in the night, Josh woke up briefly. He rolled over and asked her, Hun, why are you crying? She just shook her head. He took it to be about him, but it was not. Not exactly. After a while of feeling his impassive stare, she could tell he fell back asleep. She got up and slid under the comforter with him, cheeks clammy. Her hand slipped under the pillow and met with something hard, cold. Perplexed, her fingers wrapped around it. What she drew forth was a whiskey bottle. She got out of bed, holding her head set it on the table and stared at it. After a moment, she picked it up again and stumbled tiredly toward the sink, in the sickly light of the hotel vanity bulb. Watching with shattered eyes, she popped the top and began to pour it down the sink. Halfway through, she paused to pull a long sip for herself. Afterward, she dropped the bottle in the trash can and popped open the medicine cabinet to brush her teeth. As the mirror on the cabinet turned, she caught a good look at herself and saw something more like a shadow aping the shape of a human being. Inside the cabinet, tucked in with Josh's little bottles of cologne and aftershave, there was another bottle, like Andre the Giant trying to hide in a Where's Waldo page. A hotel-sized bottle of vodka. God damn it, she swore. Is my husband the liquor squirrel now, squirreling away alcohol for later in every nook and cranny? When she realized she had sworn out loud, she turned to see if it woke Josh. He lay there on his side, staring at her like a rabbit stares as it's about to be run over, as she held the clammy bottle in her hands, his face half in shadow. He just looked sad. He didn't even try to lie or defend himself. She began crying again and threw the bottle full into the trash. You've been crying because I disappoint you, he said finally. Emily crossed the room and sat on the edge of the bed beside him. She stroked his hair again and shook her head. I've been crying, she said, because I understand now why this is all happening. She snorted and fought against the oncoming sobs. I'm afraid, she choked, shuddering. I'm afraid, she repeated. I love you, she said, no matter what. It's not because of you. No, that it's not because of you. He naturally thought she meant the crying, but that is not what she meant. She meant what she understood was coming next. When he had fallen asleep again, she kissed his head and stood. She pulled the wedding ring from her hand and set it down on the dresser beside him and went back to the trash can. Opening the vodka, she took a sip from it and then poured it down the sink. She wiped her chin with the back of her arm. 
She pressed her palms into the counter and examined herself in the mirror. She looked like death, she thought, disheveled and sunken-eyed, eyes red from crying. Like an automaton, unsmiling, she did her makeup and hair. When she was done, she muttered to herself, There's no telling what's true, but I know what's inside my heart. She turned and went out into the night without looking back. Cherub met her on the porch of the abandoned farmhouse in the shape of a baby. You saw the truth in yourself of evil, and you've seen the evil in your husband, too, Cherub pronounced. Why, then, are you here? There are two things to fear, Emily said. That doesn't answer. You've seen the truth. Are you no ally to the wardens? Would you let your pride destroy worlds? You forget what your race has done? A woman's strength is in her heart, she said. I can't know the past, but I know the future. The baby squinted at her. If you won't humble yourself and repent, you will be prevented by force. It is my job to protect the worlds. It is my job to secure our future, Emily said, and she passed him by and entered the clattering old screen door. Behind her, she heard Cherub cry out, Why? Why? The ground began to shake. She knew that something was coming and her time would be short. Emily found him curled up in the middle of the unfurnished living room. Curled up like a dog on the torn-up carpet amid the paint-peeling walls, he saw her and got up on his elbow. No, he uttered, horror on his face. No! Why are you here? You saved him, the boy, she said. From yourself. But we both know what needs to happen. No, I won't, he said, climbing up onto his bare feet. You should leave now. But you don't want me to. Not really. Emily stepped toward him and pulled at the strap of her slip. It slid down her body and onto the ragged carpet. She covered herself with her arms. His hand touched her cheek and then played in her hair. His eyes were wide with terror. His lip twitched, showing a snaggletooth. He shook his head, no, and caressed her cheek again. In a better time, I might have loved you, he said. Rather than... He didn't finish the thought. Her breaths were shallow, swift, his as well. He sneered. I want you to have me, she whispered. I want you to. I've decided. If I can't have my children, it's for the children to come. His hand slid against the soft inside of her neck. He took a deep breath, which she felt against her skin. My name is Hunter, he said. Trembling as one who is famished, he leaned in and gently placed his mouth on her neck. Emily's breath caught in her throat. Her hands reflexively gripped his chest. He bit and tasted the warmth and metallic tingle of blood. The scream was terrible. His grip fastened on her like a hawk's. The long bestial muzzle boiled out of his face and ripped her trachea free of the skin. Eagerly he lapped the blood. The screaming had stopped, but not yet the squirming. He pinned her down on the carpet as his back bulged. Hairy shoulders humped, and he ripped into the entrails with his teeth. 
Mere minutes later, in the aftermath of a ring of wet-soaked carpet and partly picked human bones, and looming over a hollow carcass, he threw back his head and raised his claws towards heaven. One could nearly hear the bones creaking as he grew, and the spires of bone erupted from his shoulders and back, and the skeletal wings like a cape unfurled. The wound, the wound once mortal, had closed, given at last what it had needed to heal. He bellowed into the night, with all of the woe humanity would ever know, chilling the souls of gods and men. His vengeance would be upon all the brood of demons, beginning with the parasite at his door. Climbing team captain. Uh, uh, yeah, sure, dude. Um, yeah, I mean, next time. Hey, wow! Look at this. There's a directory here at the junction of the sinuses with the trachea. That's yeah, just like what you'd see in an old shopping mall. We are here, uh, somewhere in the sinuses. You see, there is the viewing platform up there. I'm guessing that's where we began, but huh? It looks as though it tells us where we have been and what is nearby, but the rest of the Desolator's body is undefined, like in a video game. Perhaps we are meant to explore. To find a way out of here? Um... Why? What? I mean... I mean, we'll consider. Yeah. Fine! I get it! You two delusion jacknards can do what you want, but if I see a way out, I'm gonna run for it! (laughs) On whose legs? Matt, shh! What the hell was that? I don't know, Matt. It came from down there? Uh, where is there? Uh, back of his throat somewhere. I recognize that sound. That was the call of one of the most feared cryptids in all of cryptozoology! The Snallygaster! The Snallygaster? My question is, what is a Snallygaster doing inside of the Pig Titan? What other secrets does this place hide? Uh, maybe we should turn around. No! We need to go on. I may have missed the Sasquatch and the Mothman, but by God, I'll search for the Snallygaster for as far as my feet... <laughs> Matt! ...will carry me. I'll climb hill and dale. I'll run far and wide. I'll trudge through the swamps. I'll bound over fallen log and slide over loose stone. I'll... Hey! What are you two looking at? 
you're... You're ahead... You're ahead of the rest in the gusto, old pal. day, sick sad boys and girls. If you think sick fic is slick as snot, be sure to leave a rating and review or drop us a comment on YouTube. Okay, uh, review here by Delaney D. I'm absolutely disgusted and delighted Matt and Brett have returned to monster podcasting with Puggles and Company. I had been savoring each past episode knowing there were a finite number of these twisted little treats the teasers have me wiggling in my seat, frustrated. I can't wait for more. Thank you, Delaney D. And from Ooh Lanterns, Ooh Spooky Lanterns, Ooh. Thank you, and long live the pastoris. And uh, thank you to to, to Lanterns. I, I, Brett and I were talking about it. I believe that's somebody who's supported us a lot in the past. It's just been a while, so sorry for not having immediate recognition. Yes, definitely. Unlike Matt, I remember you. I will never forget you. Was that creepy? Thanks to all of our subscribers. Thanks to Eric Paulson, our moderator over on Facebook, and to all of the sickos in that community. Lastly, you might be wondering what our schedule is now. We're looking at new episodes once a month, but they will be longer episodes, anthology style with multiple stories like these that you've heard. We're looking at the second Wednesday of every month. My favorite holiday. It's like Groundhog Day, but when the ground brett pops out of the mat hole and sees its ugly shadow, which gives us three more weeks of Columbus Day. Which is almost as good as getting a new Sick Fiction episode. Sicko Second Wednesday. My new second favorite holiday. Anyway, that's it. Until the Shark Angels come, Godspeed, Strange Cowboy. monstrous grin that's when i wake up oh that was a lot my jaw hurts <laughs> slow clap who knew that patrick <laughs> was such a jaw exercise he actually has a really defined chin He's giant
Who needs mewing? That's right. Giant boxy faced man. Once we get him back out of the jar. That'd be funny if he's actually handsome. <laughs> like, yeah, right? Like, oh, huh. <laughs> I, I thought this guy was going to look like, uh, what's the little short dude? Rick Moranis. Blow my nose into the microphone. Those are all good. Kariku. Is that how it would be? Kariku, Kariku. Kariku, Kariku. 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 I think I like Kariku. Kariku? Yeah, I think so too. Kariku. Kariku. Right? Kariku. Yep, okay. Then he would share a proverb for Javik to pro- pot. Then he would. <laughs> his father would have on any other day walloped him aside his donkey. <laughs> I love that word, but I don't know if I you can say it. You gotta keep it, Matt. <sighs> you gotta wallop him. You gotta wallop him on the donker. <laughs> when that kid's acting up, you wallop his donker, goddammit. His father would have, on any other day, walloped him aside his donker for such a jest. <laughs> I, almost, <laughs> I almost got it. Walloped him aside. His father would have, on any other day, walloped him aside his donker for such a jest. You get that kid and you wallop his donker. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's, just, that's how it feels like it should be said, right? Like with some emotion, not just like, oh, he's going to wallop his donker. Like I'm bored. And his father on any other day would have walloped him inside his donker. <laughs> See, that's why the word's there. It's a fun word. His father, okay. <clears throat> his father would have on any other day walloped him aside his donker. Mm. <laughs> It's like I know it's coming and my cadence gets off because I'm like trying to say it right four words before I even get there. Okay. This word has caused a whole, like all of the outtakes can come from this one. (laughs) I don't think so. I literally think if I said this to myself in my car, I would start laughing. (laughs) And how even a fart could be issued with such impassivity. <laughs> can, you, can you play that in the background? <laughs> Is that how Eeyore farts? Oh, bother. Sorry. <laughs> I think it's the headphones. It makes me feel like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> that might be your clip for the beginning of the show. Is that how Eeyore farts? Is that how Eeyore farts? The foe bristled with python arms, one of which now choked the werewolf and circled around to have the jaw clamp shut his muzzle. I read that wrong. Warrior. <laughs> Warrior. <laughs> no, that's not how the moon speaks. The moon does not speak like Goofy. <laughs> Your watcher. <coughs> oh, God. <coughs> Moaning like ghosts of... Thunder? Oh, golly. Like to answer your questions and get home to my husband. Oops, that was not the, <laughs> that was not the agent's line. 
millions of years ago, there was a power out there, out in that vast and unfathomable comma. Comma? Unfathomable comma. That's my writing style. Unfathomable commas. Everywhere. Every word its own clause. <laughs>